Good evening. I trust you're doing well. Uh, let's go ahead and take the few minutes that we have together and look at Luke chapter 13. So if you'll take your Bibles with me and turn there, we're going to dive right in. A few years ago, I had the privilege to take some of our teens out to a trip uh, to Las Vegas to a church planner. And uh, one of the things that I love to do as a youth pastor is really expose the teens to all the amazing and different ver uh, variety of uh, natural wonders that demonstrate the glory of our God. And so this trip is not like any of the others, and we wanted to make sure that we had a chance to do that. We went, flew into Vegas, helped the church planner, and he gave me really two options to see God's glory in nature. Uh, and one of them was, of course, probably you could guess the Grand Canyon. And the other one was a park that I wasn't really familiar with at the time, and that was uh, Zion National Park. And so uh, I was kind of debating the pros and the cons as he laid them out to me and made the decision to go to Zion National Park. And you may say, well, I hope that was uh, a good decision. Well, so did the, so did the teens. They were kind of, uh, some of them I could tell, weren't quite uh, understanding of why we would go to this park they had never heard of when, of course, everyone had heard of the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon, after all, is grand, right? And so I could tell as we were driving that uh, this would be uh, an interesting um, uh, experience if I chose wrong. Uh, they were unsure if I had made the right decision. And we got to Zion, and the kids absolutely loved it. Uh, and one of the reasons why I chose Zion National Park is because there are tons of things to do. Uh, there's canyon, there's hiking, there's... Uh, river walking, and it's, it's all really accessible and easy to do uh, with the time frame that we had. And it was one of the most memorable times that I've ever been anywhere with the teenagers. And I think if you talk with every single person on the trip that they will say, yeah, that was an awesome experience. But they had expectations, expectations that uh, were really different you know, potentially wanting to go to the Grand Canyon rather than going to this park that they never heard of. Uh, yet the expectations really were thankfully uh, fulfilled and even exceeded because of the type of experience that they had waiting for them at the Grand Canyon, or excuse me, at the Zion National Park rather than the Grand Canyon. Uh, and that, that's kind of where we're going here in Luke chapter 13 and why I started off with that uh, somewhat uh, uh, silly illustration. Most of us are filled with unrealized expectations. And thankfully, oftentimes our expectations are actually far inferior to what actually God gives us in our life. Um, I think that's probably true for most of us who are married, right? Inevitably, we had relationships prior to our marriage, most of us, that, that were, uh, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, dating, whatever they were, and we, we might have had some expectations at the time that we would potentially marry that person. That actually was true uh, for my wife. My wife... Uh, 
met this snake of a guy. It wasn't me, obviously. And, and uh, he, he wanted to marry her. And uh, her, her parents, my wife's parents, said no, which I was very thankful for. And certainly that was kind of a downer expectation for her. But hopefully, at the end of the day, it's a sweeter thing that her parents said no. It's a sweeter thing that she didn't marry uh, that snake. And she said yes to me later. I think the only exception uh, probably is uh, Pastor Mike and Kelly, who uh, dated and then stopped dating only to date again to get married. And so their expectations uh, were just as sweet the first time as they were, I guess, uh, when they got married. But most of us have uh, these unrealized expectations that oftentimes uh, we, we see that the sun is actually brighter and the, the grass is actually greener uh, on a different, on a different uh, set of, of expectations. And so uh, God's providence is sweet like that. And if we take our Bibles and turn again to Luke chapter 13, we're going to see that Luke gives us a parable about the kingdom of God. And we find out through Luke's gospel that, that the Jews in particular had an exclusive mindset. They had an exclusive expectation about the kingdom. They thought that it was solely for Israel. They, they thought that there were going to be a certain set of things that would happen and, and the kingdom would come. They had a certain expectation about the Messiah, the promised one. And Luke really stands in contrast with the other Gospels, particularly Matthew, uh, that collects all the kingdom parables and kind of collates them together, where Luke rather uh, aptly disperses uh, the Gospel parables rather evenly throughout the Gospel, or at least the Gospel teachings in Luke. And so if we were to take the 24 chapters of Luke just by way of statistic... And I understand that Luke didn't write with chapter breaks in mind, but uh, certainly the way we uh, enumerate them. But this will give us an understanding of, of just how uh, uh, prevalent and, and dispersed the gospel teaching is, uh, the, the kingdom teaching is in the gospel of Luke. If we take his 24 chapters, 18 of those, so three quarters of the chapters of Luke, have a specific teaching on the kingdom of God. That figure demonstrates, again, the, the, the wide coverage, the even disbursement throughout Luke's gospel. And, and so Luke uh, chapter 13, the chapter that we're on this evening, uh, contains the second highest frequency um, with, by, by verse uh, in, in Luke's, by verse in each chapter in Luke's account. And so 11% of the verses in chapter 13 contain uh, the word kingdom as it refers to the kingdom of God. And it's significant, I say all these maybe uh, uh, cold statistics, because Luke is geographically moving his presentation of Jesus' ministry closer to Jerusalem. And as he does so here in Luke chapter 13, he's demonstrating along the way there is significant teaching by Jesus regarding the kingdom of God. And these teachings stand in contrast to the expectations the Jewish people had about the kingdom. They, they stand in, 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 in um, as it were, uh, you know, the middle of a stream, a powerful stream, a cultural stream of what the Messiah and what the kingdom would be. And Jesus really 
uh, contrasts his teaching with the expectation of the kingdom in particular. And so Luke's presentation of Jesus' kingdom teaching is strategic, i.e. the context in which Luke deposits these kingdom parables as he tells us the story of the gospel as the Spirit of God lays it on his heart uh, is significant, it's strategic. And so it is even within the very context of the very context where we find these parables that are significant and will uh, give us some clarity as to what it is that Christ means by these parables and the kingdom teaching. After all, parables are somewhat veiled. And no one, I don't think, uh, claims to stand up and have a corner of truth on the parables unless Jesus himself states this is what the parable means. And so we have to be careful with that as we come to these parables. But, but in particular, uh, Luke gives us some contextual uh, moorings and help, I believe, as he tries to present Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. And so it is no surprise that we say context is critical, and it's all the more critical in light of these parabolic teachings regarding the kingdom of God. And so this context is criti critical, and we're going to want to take some time uh, this evening to look at the context and to consider uh, what it is that we're supposed to see about the kingdom of God. And if there's ever a time to talk about the kingdom of God, it's now. And frankly, if, I, if we were tomorrow saying that, we would say that tomorrow. If it was yesterday, we would say that yesterday. It is always appropriate for us to set our sights on the kingdom teaching. And it's all the more appropriate to understand the right context by which Jesus gives the kingdom teaching because that has implications not just tomorrow, but has implications today. And we'll see that here in a little bit. And so if we don't rightly take his context in, into consideration, frankly, understanding in particular these parables, uh, it's really true that the sky then becomes the limit in terms of interpretation because Jesus himself doesn't really give us a specific uh, instruction on these parables. He just gives us these parables. And so Luke, I believe, uh, again, and I know I'm belaboring the point, but Luke really does arrange these parables uh, with uh, contextual help in mind for us. And so let's look at that in verse 18 um, as we consider this, this context. Now this is the parable, and then we're going to go back and kind of go into where Pastor Mike had preached previously, and then we're going to go into uh, past this context into the next in verse 22. Uh, but let's look at verse 18. It's the mustard seed and the leaven. And you know these parables. He said, that's Jesus said, therefore. Uh, and excuse me, I've got to get uh, a different translation. That is the ESV. Let me pull up here. Sorry about that. The NASB, uh, because it begins with so, right? So, uh, so he, Jesus, was saying... What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Well, right away in verse 18, we have this, this pretty incredible uh, marker that context is pretty necessary, right? So, right? So this is, this is really bringing us uh, to, uh, it's a conjunction that's bringing us back to, connecting us to what has happened prior, right? So, 
what is the context? What is the context? And uh, that is uh, all the more important to understand. So look at verses uh, 1 through 5. We're not going to read these verses. Pastor Mike preached on them uh, a few weeks ago. But here in verses 1 through 5, Jesus points out the false security of the crowds uh, when God's judgment didn't happen to them and it happened to others, right? You remember that? And Pastor Mike really talked about retribution theology and, and, and really it, it's this kind of this false sense of pride and security that that bad thing is happening to others. That's God's judgment. It's not happening to me. I must be okay. And really, Jesus' point there is without faith and repentance, every single person is not okay. Every single person will be judged. We're not, we're not, our, our circumstances don't necessarily uh, follow that we're either being blessed or, or judged because of who, who we are, but, but it's rather uh, the, whole, the, whole, the whole realm of God's uh, 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 dealings with mankind, in particular too, frankly, the kingdom that will come, is the need for repentance and faith. And so, uh, we could say it this way in terms of our context in, in the parables. Repentance and faith are the passports to the kingdom, obviously through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 6 through 9, Jesus pictures in the parable uh, the fruitless reality of Israel in the, in the coming warning, warning of judgment. And so the, the, the fruitless tree that is pictured there. And um, outside the kingdom of God, there, there is only judgment is essentially, I believe, what, what Jesus is really trying to teach us. And, and so uh, uh, it is important to understand that, that we can't go around God's program. And God's program has always been uh, marching through unto uh, this, the kingdom uh, that he has so long talked about. And Israel, quite frankly, had so long expected. But yet, as Jesus looks at their life, and as he draws a figure from a parable and he compares them Israel to a tree and he says, you are absolutely fruitless. You are worthless as a tree in, in an agricultural setting. What's the thing to do? Cut it down. Cut it down. And so outside of the kingdom of God and all the, the attendant blessings that are in the kingdom, uh, there is only judgment. And then verses 10 through 17 give us a warning. Uh, after the warning of this judgment, Luke records the response of a synagogue, synagogue official. Remember that? After Jesus healed on the Sabbath, uh, what does the synagogue official do? Right? He says in verse 14, uh, read it with me, after Jesus healed the woman, but the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath. Now, you know, let's just pause for a second. If you see somebody getting healed after a 30-year or long-duration frailty and infirmity, is that the typical response? I mean, this is almost, you know, if you want to call it this way, this is supernaturally blindedness. I mean, this is the scale upon scale on someone's eyes to be so uh, dismissive of, by the way, all the kingdom signs 
frankly, as a Jew, this would have been a high indicator that the kingdom is coming, that, that there is healing. Uh, what the Messiah had uh, been promised to do, frankly. In fact, in Luke verse uh, 20 of chapter 11, um, Luke says, Jesus says this, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So he made no mistake about it. Uh, uh, the rabbinic tra traditions and literature, and frankly, the, the prophets of the Old Testament made no mistake about it that, that the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in with, uh, with amazing miracles. This, this, was, this was not out of the blue from an uh, eschatological standpoint in the Jewish framework. But they were so hardened <laughs> and so dismissive of the Savior, of the Promised One, that literally the critique was, hey, there are, there, out, of, out, of, out of seven days that are in the, wor in the week, you had to choose the Sabbath to heal? I mean, really? That's the critique? That's the, that's the bone you're going to pick? So over and over again in the Gospels, in various degrees, we have the king offering his kingdom. And ultimately, the kingdom is rejected. One man put it this way, and I thought it was very helpful. No matter how often God works through Jesus, the reaction is the same. And that's why miracles are never going to ultimately save people. That's why if Jesus were here today, frankly, it wouldn't really matter much. Because unbelief is unbelief whether they see miracles or not. If God's people rejected him, how much more? Who don't know the prophecies. Right? So the context of these kingdom parables is in just juxtaposition of Israel's rejection of Jesus as the king and the postponement of his kingdom. So talk about misguided expectations. Right? I mean, think about the synagogue official and his criticism that there's seven days in the week and you had to choose the Sabbath. Talk about misguided expectations and yet the incredible blessing right in front of the official incredible incredible and so it's really within these fr this framework that we have the kingdom parables that Luke presents to us in verse 18 so we have our two parables which we'll get to in a second but let's explore the context even after the parable the two parables in Luke chapter 13. And so after the two parables, we have more warnings. Frankly, we see the warnings ahead of the parables. We see Jesus uh, naturally wanting to uh, uh, teach and, 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 and demonstrate the, king, the power of the kingdom of God. And yet, time and time again, is uh, rejected. And that's true, really, uh, here as well in verses 22 through 30. Jesus urges the crowd, and I'm just going to kind of summarize because of time. Uh, he urges the crowd to enter through the narrow door that will soon be shut. And then in verse 31 through 35, and, and really that narrow door that will soon be shut, again, is, is really speaking to the reality that Jesus is often rejected. And therefore, so is the kingdom. Verses 31 through 35, Jesus laments for Jerusalem, right? The, the pinnacle, the summit of God's people. And since the nation is refusing to respond, 
he laments over them. Verse 34, let's read that here in chapter 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. So this was, this was no change, essentially, in Israel's history. They have proven to reject God time and time again. Um, but they also uh, are going to reject God and the prophets through uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, he says in verse 34, How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as hens gather her brood under her wings. The, the loving care, the watch care, the, the, the tender compassion and father and motherhood of God to want to love his children. And you would not what? have it. Then he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Why? Because they rejected the very grace and mercy of God given to them through the Messiah that was promised to them from so long ago. And so Luke's arrangement of these parables in light of their context text is significant. And Jesus, therefore, is communicating something very specific about, these, uh, about the kingdom in light of the offer and rejection by the Jews of his kingdom. In other words, that's, that's the context lesson that I'm trying to get us to see. Okay, whether or not we had time to really investigate that. But, but that really truly is essentially the cycle of the Gospels. Jesus is, in, in certain ways, offering. And there will be a formal offer in Luke chapter 19 of the kingdom at the triumphal entry. Right? But Jesus certainly is, along the way, dropping all these offers of the kingdom and, and the miracles and the promises. And all along the way, we have... We see time and time again Israel reject God. And there will be an ultimate rejection in Luke chapter 19 of, the, of Jesus as the triumph, uh, during his triumphal entry. And then a, a final rejection at the cross, obviously. Who Jesus is the king of the Jews that was rejected and crucified. And so uh, we see that this is really the context of these parables in particular. Uh, where Luke really sandwiches in between uh, verses 18, 19, 20, all right, these, other, these other contextual clues of the warnings and the rejection of the kingdom. And so we see that though the kingdom is rejected, it will not stop God from accomplishing his plan. We see that the rejection of the kingdom of God will not stop the kingdom from coming, and that though God's plan seems to have been thwarted by his kingdom, his kingdom will fill the whole earth. But there's a certain time and a certain place, and that's really part of this context. And it actually is not now. And we shouldn't be surprised of all the periphery going on in life, because the kingdom is not now. And it was rejected. And it was essentially uh, rejected and and dismissed like this mustard seed in verse 19. So let's just go back up to verse 18. Jesus said, so he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? Right? So let's find some comparables, some, some, uh, some pictures. And to what shall I compare it? And so he does so beginning in verse 19. It is like a mustard seed. Now, we know Jesus talked about a mustard seed in some other contexts as well. Obviously, Matthew has uh, this parable as well and the other synoptics. But 
what we really want to understand is that Jesus is, is trying to draw a very specific uh, teaching of the kingdom. Uh, and, and again, the sky is kind of the limit if we don't understand the context. And so we know that Matthew's account actually says uh, that Jesus says that uh, the mustard seed is, is the smallest. And so Jesus is interested in demonstrating that there's something very small right, about the kingdom, uh, at least right now. And, and it's worth noting, all right, that from, because of Matthew's account is well known, that botanic, uh, botanically speaking, um, the smallest seed, as far as my research goes, is the orchid or a type of orchid. Um, so, you know, when you walk into the grocery store or the floral area of the grocery store somewhere else and you see those $20, $24, you know, orchids that no one can keep alive, except for I heard... Uh, Mrs. Uh, Rhonda Potter can do a good job with orchids, and my mom actually uh, can do a really good job with orchids, apparently. But everybody else, I think, that I know, their orchids already die, always die. And um, I guess it's not those kind of orchids that have very small seeds or the smallest seeds, but I guess it's a type of orchid. Um, it's more like a wildflower, so I guess probably much smaller. Uh, but that's neither here nor there, but that's important for us in our faith to understand um, that Jesus isn't saying that the smallest seed in all the world is the mustard seed, okay? Um, Luke gives us actually a very important qualifier that isn't apparent in Matthew, and he says, it is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden. All right, so there's, there's, a, there's a specific realm in which Jesus is talking. He's really talking about uh, uh, crops uh, vegetable-like uh, crops, crops that are uh, productive, that are helpful for us as, um, as humans. And so he doesn't have all the seeds in mind, but essentially the garden variety kind of seeds. And mustard in the old world would be one of those seeds. And in the garden variety, believe it or not, uh, the mustard seed would have been the smallest of those seeds at the time of Christ. So, really, if Jesus is communicating to a very specific group of people, and he is, right, he's, he really has in mind everything that they, that, 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 uh, that they understand. He knows their context, right? That's what we're arguing a little bit here, even this evening. And so, in their context, they, they would have no idea about uh, perhaps the orchid and the specific orchid that he's talking about. And obviously, the king of kings and lord, the creator, knows what the smallest seed is, but he's really framing it in the framework of uh, his audience and uh, really talking about uh, the garden. That's his illustration. That's his parable. So if that's his parable, Jesus can uh, choose what he wants to bring into that. And so it's the garden. And so uh, the principal field crops of the day, such as barley and wheat and lentils and beans, uh, have much larger seeds. So the garden variety of at the time of Christ, uh, we know that the mustard seed is the smallest. In fact, according to my research, and I'm not a botanist, and, and uh, I, have to, I have other sources um, and so you can argue with them if, if you find something contrary to this. But the only modern crop plant of importance, so more of a garden variety kind of plant seed, the only modern crop plant of importance with smaller seeds than the mustard seed is tobacco. Uh, but this plant, 
was American origin, and it wasn't grown in the old world until uh, really after the 16th century, so it would have had no basis at all. And, of course, Jesus probably doesn't want to talk about that anyway. And so what's the point? The point is, is that our Bibles are completely trustworthy, that they are inerrant, and uh, Jesus has a very specific reason for saying that the mustard seed is the smallest, and Luke gives us the context why. It's because Jesus is talking about all the known seeds, in particular to gardening at that time. And so, uh, so that, that's not super important to the whole point, but maybe a, a little helpful thing if, if anyone ever brings that up to you. And so Jesus communicates that the kingdom of God is like a very small seed, like a mustard seed. And he says also in verse 21, it is like a bit of leaven. It is like leaven, which, is a, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour. So it's a lot less leaven than there is a whole bunch of flour, all right, which is about, uh, I read, about 100, uh, 100, 100 loaves worth of, of bread um, until it was all uh, leavened. And so there's a, there's a small amount of a mustard seed, it's a little bit, there's a little bit of lemon, and, um, and so we see, perhaps maybe in the, in the context where, where Luke is going, is that um, to, in the Jewish mind, for most Jews, as they see Jesus, they see him as a small, inconsequential, in uh, maybe very dismissive kind of figure, and they just want him off the scene. Um, and so uh, that certainly, I believe, is, is a force here uh, that we can understand. Um, and so uh, the kingdom of God is like these things, and we see that. And it is also, while the kingdom was dismissed, it can be dismissed, uh, Jesus' point is it's still nonetheless coming. Uh, though small and dismissed in origin, it will be substantial and comprehensive. In fact, everyone will have to reckon with it. And that essentially, I believe, is the point as well. Um, many ideas of this parable go past what the parable teaches, uh, and we'll look at those in a second. Uh, but we see that, really, that this parable is comprehensive. It, is, it, will, it will have to be, uh, this parable, the kingdom is comprehensive. It will have to be reckoned with. It is substantial. Um, and and it, 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 it is the basis by which people are ultimately going to be judged, whether or not they're in this kingdom. And we see that the mustard seed grew and became a tree. Now, uh, mustard seed is more of a, a tall bush. Uh, it's not really a tree, but it's interesting that Jesus is really saying that uh, this, this mustard seed plant became substantial enough that the birds of the air nested in its branches. And uh, we don't have time, but we can go back to the Old Testament and see where uh, the, the kingdom of God is like that safe haven and is often referred to in that sense. And even our translation uh, shows us as much by its formatting, that it is an Old Testament uh, allusion and quote specifically. Um, and so uh, it is a place that is uh, substantial and mustard seed, uh, mustard plants can maybe get 8, 12 feet tall. And so whatever Jesus has in mind, he has something very small that, uh, that gets very big and very substantial. And again, that's true in verse 21. 
where he says there's just a little bit of leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until the whole of it, all of it, was all leavened. And so without the context kind of guiding us, the sky, again, is the limit in terms of how we can understand this in terms of the kingdom of God and its teaching. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss the actual teaching. So we don't want to say, well, we can't learn anything from this parable. Um, all scripture, right, is profitable. But we have to do it in such a way that is appropriate uh, to be sure. And so let me just rifle off here a few ideas that uh, perhaps the parable uh, goes past a, a few teachings that the parable, I, I feel, really uh, is, is not saying. And, and that's true, I think, from, from the context. So uh, one of them is, is, well, Jesus is kind of redefining the kingdom. And so one man says, the kingdom Jesus sees as breaking in will arrive in disenchanting and disarming form, not as a mighty cedar, right? astride the lofty mountain height, but as a lowly garden herb. And so for Jesus, the kingdom is not a towering empire, but an unpretentious venture of faith. And so there's this whole redefining from what was told in the past by the prophets and uh, really what Jesus wants to usher in. And uh, I would say that that's really not true, obviously, I think. That's, that's not a helpful understanding. Um, a second one is it's, it has an insignificant beginning of the kingdom, and, and that, that might be partially true. I think we can all say, yeah, we understand that Jesus is saying it's small, there's a mustard seed, there's a little bit of leaven. Um, and so that, that's not necessarily a, 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 maybe a false or unsupported idea from this passage, but I would, I would say that that's not, the, that's not the whole of it. That's not the end result of that, as we'll see. Perhaps another understanding of this passage would say, of these parables would say, it's the realization of, uh, in the consummation of the kingdom. In other words, uh, I'm just going to say, read what one man said, the parable pertains instead to the capacity of the tree to afford shelter for birds. And so the kingdom of God right now is here, he's saying. It's present right now, and the birds are flocking to find shelter in the shade of the tree. Um, and so, frankly, this man is importing a whole slew of eschatological viewpoints into his understanding of this parable. And I'd say that one is, is, not, uh, is not accurate whatsoever, according to the context or the rest of the scripture. Um, and so perhaps we could say, well, Jesus is trying to talk about the continuity of the kingdom, saying that there's a basic connection between small beginnings taking place underneath his ministry and the kingdom that is future. And the focus of the parable seems to be on the extensive growth of the kingdom, i.e. right now. And again, that just doesn't seem to square with the context. The context is that the kingdom was rejected. And Jesus really uh, is saying, well, how can I compare uh, the kingdom of God right now to you? And it's, it's, it's being dismissed. It's, 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 it is minuscule to you. Uh, but one day... Uh, sure enough, understand that the kingdom of God will be, and it will be of utmost importance. And so what happens in the present, despite every failure and opposition, is a promise of the future triumph of God's kingdom. One man put it this way. He said, the humble beginnings and seemingly small effects begun in Jesus' ministry are not inconsistent with the future manifestations of the kingdom of heaven in which, the absolute, in which will be the absolute and worldwide rule. Right? And so, um, so I think these really are the force of 
what Jesus is trying to get us to understand about the kingdom uh, as small as a mustard seed and yet will be a tree, the kingdom that is a small little bit of lemon, uh, leaven that will essentially leaven the whole lump. But we can't forget that the gospel and the kingdom and the king of the kingdom was rejected. And Colossians helps us with this truth. It helps us understand the, the, uh, the, perhaps the tension that we feel today and what kind of truths we can take from a passage like this and, and apply it to our understanding today. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. That's a future inheritance, right? Future inheritance really related to the kingdom. Uh, of the saints in light. And then in verse 13 it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So, in one sense, the inheritance has yet to come. It's there, it's true, but we have yet to realize it. But in another sense, Paul says, we are already transferred from that kingdom of darkness to this kingdom, the kingdom of His beloved Son. Revelation chapter 5 helps us understand that same point. It says, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. That has already happened. We are already imported. We are already in the kingdom in terms of our position. But then it says in verse 10, and they will reign on the earth. That ain't happening right now. And the king is not here, and so the kingdom is not here. And so that there is this positional truth with this ultimate reality. And I believe that essentially is what uh, Jesus is teaching with these parables. Is that there, is, there was a rejection. It was dismissed. But ultimately, my friends, even though it was dismissed and he was rejected, he will come. And his kingdom will come. And so uh, Paul really reconciles this with the great mystery that is now revealed in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. This mystery now revealed is the church. Right? And this is the way God has chosen to bring glory to himself and people to salvation. And, and, and this is kind of how we fit in to this kingdom right now. It's through the church. But it is not yet. But one day our king will come back and he will bring his kingdom. And so we are not in God's kingdom now and that is why we must submit to our government. So here's a practical application. Right? And we're going to list a few of these and then be done. Right? We, we aren't in God's kingdom now. So we have this, this institution over us called government. Romans chapter 13 says that God has raised government up and that we're to give honor where honor is due. And so wherever it is appropriate to honor and obey the government, we ought to honor and obey the government. There are no exceptions. There are no qualifications. That is our present reality as church members, as members of the church, not Grace Church of Matter, as members of the church. Your pastors are committed to the reality that we are underneath our governing authorities. As long as we can be. As long as we can give honor to whom honor is due. Why? 
because God's kingdom is not now. It will be, but that has all kinds of ramifications for how I live today. I've, I have the responsibility to be the best citizen ever of the United States of America. That's uh, my citizenship. Because I have another kingdom I answer to. And I can't just negate my responsibilities that God has given me here because I have a better kingdom. No, in fact, because I have a better kingdom, I actually have a better, more, more responsibility to be the kind of citizen that I ought to be. So Titus chapter 3 uh, says that we submit even to those who are not born again. That's really the, the force there. Even though that there's dark people in our government, and, has, and, and, and they have dark ideas where we can't, where honor is due them, right? So, so we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't honor we don't honor them when we cannot honor God, right? So when there's a competing interest, our allegiance, obviously Jesus uh, answers that for us. It's always the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But where there's not a competing interest, and, and, and when there are competing interests, we better make sure that they're really biblical competing interests and not just our personality or our thoughts, right? Uh, we need to submit to those who God has raised up, by the way, because 1 Peter chapter 2 says, it is the will of God that we do so. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, government brings us gospel opportunities. And... And so we ought to be praying for those in government. And we ought to be praying that our government allows us to have gospel opportunities and can live a peaceful and quiet life to be able to promote the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has been a trying time to submit, hasn't it? It's, it's been different. No one has really had to walk through this probably for 100 years. And it wasn't probably quite the same as the last time our country had a nationwide pandemic. So it's been a trying time, and we've done a great job as a church working through these things. But I just encourage you that one of the applications, I believe, of this parable is that uh, 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 we cannot live today like, like today is the kingdom of God, even though we understand it's coming. In other words, we ought to understand that there are going to be constant frustrations and constant disagreements and constant uh, uh, kind of bristles and thorns. And it is our task not to choose the easiest route or not to just play the I'm a Christian card and I'm not going to obey the government route. No, it is our task, frankly, to, to do the hard work of living right now as obedient as we can and submitting to our government as we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at times that's going to be very difficult. And it has been very difficult for me, frankly, in the past year. And I think and I hope that I have grown through that reality. And so another practical application point for us today is we are not in God's kingdom now, so our government does, not, does need our influence. It does. Right? So we can go to the extremes of that because the kingdom of God isn't now, we're not going to even be part of it. Or we can go to the other extreme, and some people say the kingdom of God is now, and we've got to be influencing. That's our whole role. And I'm not saying either of those extremes are correct. It is a logical conclusion, however, I think, from this passage that 
that as we kind of take it a couple levels into the application of our life, that we understand that the kingdom of God is going to come, and we have a responsibility right now with our, our, our nation, our government. And so it is a good idea, I think, personally, for us to vote. And thus, for us to exercise our abilities uh, to vote for whom we think would, uh, would give us a peaceful and quiet life and who we think would, would be champions, whether or not they're champions of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're champions of things that, that he at least can uh, 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 be appreciative of. And so I think that that's a, that's a helpful thing for me and why I vote. It's a logical conclusion that we should be influencers in our government. And so all of us have the responsibility to pray for our rulers. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we pray specifically, not that they have good policies. We ought to be praying specifically. There's nothing about policies in that chapter. It's everything about their salvation. And so we ought to be praying for their salvation. And then quite frankly, folks, if we're going to be praying for it, how does that happen if we aren't, if, if there aren't some among us that are participating in government? In the local level, maybe the state level, who knows, maybe eventually the national level. But if we're going to be praying for, for souls to be saved, it's going to require souls to go to to, to, to communicate the gospel truths to them. And so uh, we ought to be uh, influencing our government, which means we, we, we can get on boards and, and we can run for certain things and and, and wouldn't that be an amazing thing to be able to, to, be able to, to, be able to influence a nation's policy? Uh, but even more than that, to influence other people's in the government's souls for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, it might be a logical conclusion to get involved, to write letters, as we've said in the past, to your, uh, to your elected officials. Let them know that you're praying for them. Let them know that you're thankful for them. And uh, certainly that you would long to be a help in any kind of advisory boards or committees that they would uh, uh, need to form. So those who are burdened uh, ought to participate. But again, the extremes are important to be careful of. And it's, 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 it's a truth that our government is not part of this future kingdom. Right? I mean, we, we've got to come to terms with that. Right? I love the United States of America. And, and I long to see it go a certain direction. But frankly, the United States of America will not be part of the kingdom government. <laughs> There's a lot that will be, but it won't be the stars and the stripes. And so, be burdened and be influencers in the local, state, and maybe even the national level. But understand that the government... Uh, our government today will never provide the longing we have as people of faith. It will never satisfy those things. And so it's not the hope, it's not the answer. Only one is, and that is the king. And that is the king of our kingdom. And so in our text, the parables deal with the need uh, for a faith. Right? Many dismiss the king because he's not here. Many uh, we see that the door is narrow. We see that, uh, uh, um, that it truly is hard to walk today uh, by faith. And, and we, we, we often long to walk by sight. And so it's easy for the things that we see and the things that we hear to, to kind of get in the way. 
and to kind of and to, and to kind of detract us and derail us at times from our ultimate mission and our ultimate focus and our ultimate reality that we are really kingdom citizens. And that kingdom, by the way, is not today. So it, so so how do we operate and how do we how do we uh, uh, essentially live with these tensions? Well, we're, we've got to be people of faith, folks. We've got to continue to exercise and grow our faith. It's interesting. Jesus gives us a, a parable about faith in the smallness of a mustard seed, doesn't he? And so we've got to do all that we can to encourage one another. Encourage each other in the word of God, in prayer, in fellowship, in our church family life. And, and encourage each other to continue to do these exercises of faith so that as we continue to persevere and, and live, uh, we can hopefully give our faith to others. So we know that Jesus used the picture of a mustard seed, as I said elsewhere, to describe the potential and powerful nature of faith. And faith is the key that unlocks all the doors to the kingdom, obviously faith and repentance through the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps there are some who are listening that are so focused on the sight things, the here and now things, what I see and what I hear, that, that, that faith is, is really not the whole or the core of your life. It, it might be a component of it, but what, what's really driving you are other things. What you're really focused on are other things. And maybe today we would do well to consider this parable or these, the set of parables, and understand that really today things are dismissed. Things are hidden. But my friends, that is why Jesus calls us to be people of faith who walk by faith and not by sight. And so it's easy to get distracted on the things that we see and the things that we hear. But we, we have to discipline ourselves. We, have, we must discipline ourselves to be people who understand that while the kingdom is not today, it will come. And so all of our energies and all of our focuses and all of our efforts ought to be with that kingdom in mind. And so we talk a lot like we ought to have redemptive relationships and, and, and gospel goals behind what we do. And this little passage, parable reminder, is just a nod in that direction to understand that though the world is crazy and there's chaos and, and, it ha and, and, and Jesus and his kingship has been rejected, he will come. Don't get distracted about that or from that, I should say. And remember, remember that that demands a set of senses that are, that are, that are easily co-opt to use a word, phrase that Pastor Kent often uses with me. And, and that is our faith. So Father, tonight, 
I pray that you would help us. Help us to understand that there are uh, a lot of people that have misguided expectations all over the place. And yet there is one who brings about something so much better than what the world is longing for, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But I pray that you would help us as believers to really contemplate. Have we been sidetracked? Have we been derailed to a degree? Do we have expectations that really, quite frankly, are never going to be satisfied until we are in God's kingdom. Until we are with Jesus face to face and rule and reign with him. And so that mindset has a lot to do with our patience with others, our need to forgive others, and our investment of energies and passions. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to discern the time. Help us to discern how we can best uh, be influencers in all areas of our life, including the government, including local and state, and even national levels. But help us to never get detracted from or distracted from the main goal and the main message that each one of us called to the Lord Jesus Christ has. And that is today to be preachers of faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. To share with them that this world is not it. That there is actually something so much more. And so the expectations that we have for this place will always, always fail if they're not expectations set ultimately in you and in your reign and in your kingship. And so we pray that you'd help us to orient ourselves that way this week and this year for your glory. Now help us to go and enjoy each other and all the good things that you've given to us in this world and help us to use them to share your wonderful love and the great king that we serve. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Good night. Lord bless you.